Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Emily Sherb, who is a physical therapist with a lifelong passion for understanding human movement. She received her doctorate in physical therapy from Washington University in St. Louis. She continues to be involved with education as a regional fellowship mentor and as a provider of continuing medical education. As a practicing aerialist for close to 30 years, she's dangled from balloons, danced in the air, and swung from trapeze with, might I add, the greatest of ease. That background inspired her to specialize her practice on circus and aerial artists. As an educator, she travels the country teaching circus artists, instructors, and healthcare professionals about the unique physical demands and challenges of training the body to do incredible feats. Through workshops, conferences, and continuing education courses, Emily strives to increase awareness and safety in the circus arts. As an extension of this work, her first book, Applied Anatomy for Aerial Arts, was published. Dr. Sherb lives in Seattle, Washington, where her practice is dedicated to working with professional and recreational circus artists at her clinic, Pure Motion Physical Therapy. She also holds positions as a resident physical therapist at the School of Acrobatics and New Circus Arts, and is a company physical therapist for the contemporary circus company, Acrobatic Conundrum. As a board member of Seattle Dance and Performing Arts Medicine, Dr. Sherb works to provide free and affordable healthcare for performing artists. Emily, we are so pumped to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here to get to chat with you guys. And so my first question is, do you get to work with elephants? Oh, man, I actually have never worked with an elephant. And I have some friends who have, and it looks so cool. Okay, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. The biggest disappointment of my physical therapy education was learning that hippotherapy was not, in fact, with hippos. <sighs> so I'm I'm just, like, a little bit saddened to know that if I want to be a circus rehab specialist, that I'm not going to get to pet an elephant. 
you are not necessarily, but you might, you never know. Not many circuses have animals anymore, but um, every once in a while, maybe one will come into your life. You never know, they sneak in the back door sometimes, just quietly. But also, did, did, when you did the HIPAA uh, training, did you have a video that had a dancing hippo? Because ours did. No, I, again, feel very left oh. out and saddened oh, no. by this revelation. It was a cartoon hippo in a tutu. I also feel like I did not have that in school, so maybe well, they changed it. I'm That's sure they probably bummer. changed it. Apparently, <laughs> I, mean, I went to school a long time ago. <laughs> let's be honest. We know we all know that Captain needs to change the educational curriculum, but can we get that back, please? Because that makes me sad that I didn't get to see the dancing hippo. But also, you guys are making me a little nervous that I created this in my head, which I'm also okay with. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty I, sure there was a dancing hippo. Is that our new? No, I don't feel like that would be a very accessible logo for our podcast. No. No. <laughs> no. Although it does That's go along with the my Elton John uh, motto for <laughs> weightlifting in the performing arts of no more tiny dancers, but that's a we we've already nixed that one. So, yeah. oh well. So, so <laughs> Emily. Welcome to the show. Uh, glad that you got to experience what a, such a wonderful introduction. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe expand on your journey into aerialist stuff and circus and like PT? Like how how did you how did you end up where you are right now? Yeah, um, I started doing circus when I was about 11 years old. Um, I was at a summer camp that happened to have a circus program, and I was terrified of it. I get motion sick. I do not like heights, um, or didn't. <laughs> um, and there was a cute boy and a bunch of peer pressure from friends. And you know, at 11, that's pretty much enough. Um, so I started doing uh, some circus. I started uh, doing mini trampolines. So I would jump off a small trampoline and do flips and land on mats because I was already a gymnast. Uh, and then uh, expanded out to doing static trapeze and flying trapeze, um, and then started teaching and training. And I would, um, as soon as I got my driver's license, I'd drive into New York City by myself and take private lessons from like the one person who was teaching circus at the time or teaching trapeze at the time, Chelsea Bacon, uh, in New York City. Uh, I used to grow up in New Jersey, so it wasn't driving from Seattle because I'd be really weird. In the car. <laughs> <laughs> like, a little ridiculous for a brand new driver to like be like piecing out across the country once a week. Um, but yeah, and when I finished high school, I moved to Portland, Oregon and joined, uh, uh, apprenticed at an aerial dance company there. So I was working with trapeze bars that were basically about five feet off the ground, so about forehead height for me, because I'm not a tall human. Um, and you work on the floor and with the trapeze, so you can gain momentum and run, and then at the edge of the pendulum, maybe do a twist and move in and out of the floor and work with other people. Um, and there I worked with two companies, one called Pendulum Dance Theater and the other one called Do Jump Physical Theater, which has been around forever. Um, and I worked with them for a while and then went to undergrad. Um, every summer during undergrad, I would teach circus at summer camps or um, uh, flying trapeze at a flying trapeze rig up in Boston. Um, but I'd stay, I stayed connected to the circus community, um, really working every summer uh, in some capacity of teaching. 
And then in St. Louis itself, uh, where I went to undergrad, I worked with Circus Harmony, which is a uh, youth circus. A, uh, they're based in the City Museum, and they perform every weekend. And these kiddos are absolutely incredible. They are full-time circus professionals, and, and they're just amazing. Um, so I stayed involved in circus all through undergrad. And then when I finished undergrad, I took time off again because <laughs> that's what I do. I moved uh, moved back to New York. Um, I was a dance major and a physical anthropology major. So I was in New York uh, apprenticing with a dance company called Streb and teaching full-time um, at Trapeze School New York and teaching flying trapeze and taking whatever gigs were thrown my way. So a lot of performing, uh, doing commercial work and doing advertising work. I got to hang from a balloon for real. I was raised up in a balloon in Bryant Park um, under a giant Snapple balloon and got to do flips hanging from a balloon, a hot air balloon in the middle of Manhattan. And that was definitely a highlight um, of my professional circus career. Um, But really all of that is to say, a lot of time spent performing, a lot of time spent teaching, and that teaching was really invaluable when it came to going back to grad school for physical therapy. Learning how to watch bodies move and learning how to give feedback on movement and having that skill and that knowledge before I even entered the PT profession was definitely a a huge asset. So after performing and working in New York, I came back to St. Louis to go to WashU for grad school. Um, again, during breaks and during my clinical rotations, I had my eyes out for any clinical rotation that was near a flying trapeze rig or a circus school um, and definitely incorporated stuff in. So I did one of my rotations in San Francisco near the circus center there and got to, I had friends that worked there and they got me a part-time teaching job at the school while I was on my rotation as well. So I got, I really stayed connected with the community. And then when I graduated, I was like, cool, I'd love to work with circus artists, but that's not realistic. I'll work with normal humans and see a couple circus artists, but I'm definitely going to move to a city that has circus. And so I moved to Seattle and over the last 11 or so years have um, built a circus, pretty much circus only practice. I have about 90% of my patients are circus artists. Um, There are three large circus schools in Seattle now. Um, and a couple small ones, and the pole studios are really up and coming as well. So I see a lot of those artists as well. And it's just a huge growing community. So that's my very long version of <laughs> kind of what's going on. Um, and then the last couple of years, I've taken the knowledge I've gained from working with circus artists and circus bodies and turning it more to an education side. Snapple put you up in the air like in a balloon? <laughs> Yes, yes. There are you get, newspaper clippings. It's really cool. You know how like some people get paid in like trident layers? Did you get paid in Snapple? <laughs> oh, man. Had they attached the Snap? Yeah. Lifetime supply, but you have to take it up in the balloon with you. And then you're like trying to balance it out. No, no. Thankfully, they paid a starving artist in actual money. Okay. <laughs> and then, too, like what happened to that drink company? I feel like they're not as popular as they were like 10 years ago. Oh, man. They were huge in like so the big. 90s. I mean, they, they were putting like people in balloons flavors. in the air. And then, like, yeah, they're putting people in balloons. That was <laughs> in the early 2000s-ish. Yes, early 2000s. <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> I feel like they were doing, they were doing like, the cool Red Bull stuff before Red Bull was having people do, like, skydiving and whatnot. Yeah. They yeah, just, that... like, Red Bull just had more money, probably. 
Um, or they put more money towards the marketing. Yeah. Red Bull's kind of really good at marketing. Yeah. They've always had like this people out at every event with the backpacks and the Red Bulls and the. Mm-hmm. So did you sustain injuries growing up within the aerial arts? Because I feel like that's how most of us get into physical therapy. Yeah. So I was a gymnast and a circus artist. So yes, definitely injuries. Um, thankfully, nothing. Well, not a lot of breaks, um, but lots of. I, like many performing artists, like a lot of dancers, like a lot of circus artists, I do tend to the more hypermobile side of things in my joints. So I had multiple shoulder subluxations and dislocations. Um, I subluxed one of my hips. Um, I've had low back pain stuff. Uh, torn. I tore my PCL without tearing my ACL, which I think is a talent. Yeah, um, that is that's Bravo. quite the feat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I've definitely had my share of injuries when they have like the little boxes, like list your injuries for like doctor's visits. And like, do you really want all of them? <laughs> Here's my 15 page binder that I just take with me to all my medical appointments. Here's the <laughs> I, I have to say one of my longest lasting ones was I was, um, do, on the flying trapeze and I was doing, um, what's called a, a, a double. So a double flip, two flips. So I swing. So a flying trapeze is the thing with a person hanging on this side and a person hanging on this on another side and you swing towards each other and do a trick and go across to the catcher, which is aptly named, they catch you and go away. And I was doing a double. So I was swinging out and doing two flips and I opened, meaning I got out of the shape and got into my position, getting ready to be caught. And I jammed my thumb on my catcher's arm Ooh. and bent it back. So I have a torn something i've never actually had anyone look at it um <laughs> but it, yeah so yeah it like was purple i couldn't hold anything this was before computers were that prevalent in school and i remember i couldn't write because i was like i think i was still in high school and i was like i can't write <laughs> my whole hand was purple but actually funny story because i'm just rambling today um because I have some damage in my right thumb from that incident, I actually failed a practical exam in no uh, in grad school because I'm a very physical person. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I need to physically do things. And I didn't have the ability to move my thumb the way we needed to do for the muscle test. And so I'm like, it just didn't ever click in my brain. And I think I actually, they tested me on that muscle, I think twice. And I may have like, the second time too struggled through it because I don't have it. So it just doesn't work on my body. So, uh-huh. so true confessions, you guys got that out of me. Um, I think all my other practical exams were flying colors, I'm sure, but that one. <laughs> I also failed one, so I'm with you. We we live in the same world. <laughs> I, uh, as, as someone who has a pacemaker ICD, I was the only person in our class that had a cardiac pathology. And in our cardio poem class, I got called on by our professor quite a bit to share my personal experiences as a patient in the cardiac realm. On our cardiac final, I got a 48 after the curve. Um, <laughs> which what? I believe You were helping a, to educate others, and that's not necessarily the same thing. I believe it was a record uh, for that class and for myself. And it was one of those things, like, at the end of our didactic thing in third year, I was just like... I was proud more than anything. <laughs> I was just like, I have I have accomplished a lot in my time here. <laughs> yeah, you've left your mark. 
I, I did. I mean, it's a low mark, but you left it. <laughs> hey, I mean, we can't all be good at everything, so <laughs> I uh, definitely not. Don't ask me any questions about cardio palm stuff because I. I hope some students are listening so they can like feel a little less stressed about their own educational process. Like, we're all fine. We're all practicing. Like, yeah, yeah. Life goes on. <laughs> I always, I always ask people when people talk to me about like struggling with grades. I'm like, what do they call the person who graduates last in PT school? A PT, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No one cares as long as you like know enough not to like, you know, actually harm somebody and rule out red flags and stuff. Like, who, nobody cares what grades you got on your exams. That's very uh, true. But anyways, speaking of like educational stuff, um, this is going to be a weird segue into circus. Uh, <clears throat> no, for me, circus what? is all about education, so we're great. What what exactly is circus? Because when I think of circus, I feel like it's such a broad group of like performers. Like yeah. there can be like if we think of like a like a circus circus that I went to as a child. Um, again, elephants, but also <laughs> like clowns, like people on like motorcycles, unicycles, like trapeze, uh, some yeah. sort of stilts, like all sorts of like various performers. So do, do you work with everybody and like what, what makes up circus and how is that different from, from an aerialist? Yeah. So, um, circus is all of that, um, which is kind of amazing. So it's, it is really hard to, um, delineate what exactly a, a circus artist is because it is anything and all of that. And actually I'm looking it up right now for you guys. Um, <laughs> someone just, I'm part of this. I'm part of a group called Circademics because we're nerdy about circus. Um, but oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, someone did just define circus. So let me see if I can read you this definition of circus from uh, the situation of circus in the EU member states study report. They say that circus is a performance of act or acts or original shows and performances taking place in tents, theaters, open spaces, or any other suitable location and using primarily one or more of the recognized circus disciplines, either in combination with other art disciplines or not, and either presented as acts on their own or acts performed in relationship to each other or as an original show and performance. So everything <laughs> is circus, if you call it circus. Mm-hmm. I like the um, uh, or not part of the definition. <laughs> Or not. Um, But yeah, circus is all of that. Circus can be any of that. Um, I have seen, uh, so what you're talking about and what you grew up with is what's commonly now referred to as traditional circus, um, which is a little bit of everything. It's it's what we tend to think of as either a tent show or like the big Ringling Brothers shows that we grew up with. Um, And now there's what they're calling contemporary circus, which like modern dance, you know, and then there's like, what's going to be post-contemporary circus, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but a contemporary circus usually has more generally, again, because circus can be anything, ha- uh, will often have a through line um, of storytelling. I have seen contemporary circus shows where all they do is hand balancing, meaning they're doing handstands or hand balancing on each other um, or throwing each other, but they're all in contact with the ground. Uh, there's an amazing circus company called Gravity and Other Myths, also a great name for a circus company. Yeah. And they do a show that is just that. It's just acrobatics and hand balancing and groundwork. And I've seen circus shows that 
Uh, one recently, their their whole rule for the show was they only performed on one apparatus, which was an aerial rope, um, which is basically uh, a the rope you climb to gym class. Not like that. It's but it is a rope that hangs from the ceiling and it's covered in a casing that makes it um, more comfortable to climb and and safer, so it doesn't fray. Um, and so every single performer used the rope apparatus, and no one and there had to be at least one person. At least one person on stage had to be off the ground the whole time. So there's never, there was no, all of them were never on the ground at the same time. So, uh, and that was acrobatic conundrum, the company that I that I work with. So all of these things can be circus. And then, oh, I was in London last year teaching and seeing friends, and and I happened to be there when friends of mine were performing in a circus show, and they closed the streets of London, and they did it in multiple sites around London, parading through the streets, and it was one of the most magical things I have been to to watch a major world city close streets for circus um, and that's gorilla circus and that was fantastic so Wait, are there actual gorillas in that circus no just human monkeys just human primates so would Cirque du Soleil be considered a contemporary circus company yes. then Cirque du Soleil would be considered contemporary circus yeah so they have kind of a through line they have um, generally their shows have a storyline and or a, a theme around which they perform. Traditional circus is generally going to be, and again, or not, um, generally going to be uh, a ringmaster or somebody announcing acts, and the acts don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Um, and those traditional circuses are more likely to have you know, family lineages, or again, not, because these days there are so many more uh, training spaces that um, there's the general public is is training up in their circus schools to get people there. Um, but yes, and then you asked about the difference between aerial and circus. So I think of this as a square and a rectangle. So a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square necessarily. So aerial is almost always considered circus unless the person doesn't consider it circus. Maybe it's aerial dance and not circus. Um, but aerial is pretty much can always be classified in some way, usually in a circus, but circus will not be, um, is not always aerial. It can be a stilt walker or a elephant rider or a juggler or a high wire walker. Um, and yes, I do actually work with all of those things. So I have not, that's not true. I have worked with an, a, a woman who did elephant riding, but it was yes. not her actual act. It was, <laughs> it was like something, it's something that like she did as part of the show, but she was like taught it, taught it when she got there kind of thing. But uh, yeah, all of that. Uh, I work with, on a regular basis, I work with jugglers, hand balancers, which is basically handstands, um, and and aerialists and pole dancers, climbers, less of that. So what kinds of, like, what kinds of injuries do you see in, that, in these populations? I imagine that it has to vary depending on, like, the specific task, but, I mean, they all sound very incredibly demanding in one way or another. Yeah, so these artists are generally working um, at end range and under load. So, and often with a huge level of dynamics. So for my aerialists, I primarily see um, shoulders, shoulder injuries, um, and then probably low back hips or hips, then low back. Um, in my ground acrobats, I am seeing more low back knees and ankles, uh, landing injuries. From contact with the ground, your aerialists don't get those as much because if they're on the floor, they've done something wrong already, um, right? Um, or uh, mat injuries are definitely a thing. 
So you are an aerialist who comes down and is walking across a mat and your ankle sticks, gets stuck between two of them or things like that. Um, there are some research studies that have come out. Uh, they generally, current the current literature that is out there does not particularly break down by discipline very well. Some of the newer stuff does. Um, and we have quite a few studies that should be coming out in the next couple of years that I'm aware of that are looking at it more. Um, and I'm very excited for the next couple of years. So everybody watch out for the circus literature next year, <laughs> read, depending on our journals. So lots of shoulders, lots of hips, but basically the really mobile joints that they then need to be able to stabilize. Do you feel like there are deficits, we'll say aerialists, that there are common deficits within the training for aerialists that you see as a physical therapist that you educate them about or you do workshops with them about? Because I know with dance, there's common faults that run between all of the disciplines. So I'm curious if the same thing applies to aerial arts. Yes and yes. Um, yes, and there's quite a few different reasons why that is. So some of it is that, um, some of it is coming from the uh, artist side and some of it is coming from the pedagogy. Um, because circus arts have grown so much in the US over the last decade or so, um, 15 years, uh, it's really exploded. The number of teachers has really exploded and there is not a standard way for teachers to get trained. Um, and some areas, uh, YouTube is good enough. There's no standard governing body. So the level of pedagogy across the country varies hugely. There's also the knowledge component because the circus has exploded. Even the way I was trained and was training others 20, 30 years ago when I started, um, the way I was taught and worked for me really isn't necessarily the most biomechanically sound. Um, and then you have the challenge of having adult bodies learning a new movement um, that may not have been athletes. So we have these bodies that may not have been adult athletes. I call it adult onset aerial. So they are all of a sudden being asked to raise their arms all the way up overhead at end range and then stick their whole body weight on it. And it's a lot to ask. So all of that to say, what I tend to end up lecturing on the most and teaching workshop on the most and has the most level of interest is um, shoulder mechanics, especially at end range, so especially in hanging. Um, when we go into aerial, we're asking for end range and a good amount of load. So we're asking for end range and high load on their shoulders but then the first skills that they tend to learn or the ones that um, kind of get them there, get them to the next levels, are inverting or turning upside down. So they're all of a sudden then pulling their arms to their body repeatedly and loading up their lats really heavily with their body weight. And so your lats are shoulder extensors, right? They're, so they're bringing your arms down towards your body and they get really big and strong, but we still want that end range hanging. And if they don't have that rotator cuff stability coming in, or if they're not progressed slowly enough or with enough attention, those lats really end up pulling quite a bit on their glenohumeral joint. Um, so I end up lecturing a lot and teaching workshops on kind of what people should look for in their hanging and how the shoulder blades should be engaged um, and how that can support good glenohumeral joint stability. Um, and so I teach that a huge amount. The other thing is just like in dance, uh, when you're in first position and they're like, okay, a fifth position, and they say, you know, pull your shoulders down your back, create that space. We're saying the same thing to our aerialists or they historically have been told that 
And if you bring your arms all the way up over your head and you scat and depress your scapula, you're basically slamming your shoulder blade into the musculature or humeral joint. So it's kind of educating them on how do we create that space between our head and our shoulders without doing a huge amount of scapular depression. And the answer is that we really get more upward rotation and posterior tilt. So we're asking more, a lot of lower trapezius and a little bit of serratus to give them that stability instead of pulling down through their lats and creating a huge amount of depression and downward rotation of the scapula. I've seen that, and I've, I've seen that discussed a lot, especially with, I guess, in the context of what more barbell athletes, but mm-hmm. using different cues like armpits forward or mm-hmm. something to try to not get, because I guess, and it, you know, it makes sense because if you're cueing down and back all the time, you know, we are getting that from a biomechanical standpoint that kind of like we're doing two opposite things almost. Um, right. But are there like good cues that you use when you're working with that population? Yeah, um, there's some great ones that have come out of the circus community. So the most common one in Seattle that people use is break the bar if they're on a trapeze bar or break the bar behind you. I like the behind you part because sometimes you get people that'll like do like the strongman thing where they'll break the bar and like imagine that they're bending it in front of them into a U shape and they end up closing their shoulder angle. Um, but breaking the bar behind you keeps their hands overhead. And if you think about kind of snapping a bunch of spaghetti uh, behind you backwards um, that keeps their arms a little more open in that end range flexion. So break, you know, I love it. They're both doing it right now for <laughs> podcast listeners. Arms are overhead, grabbing it and breaking their spaghetti behind them. Um, I, I also just like to tell them where to feel the work in their body. So I'm like, I don't want you to feel it down the sides of your body. I want you to feel it in the middle of your back. Um, I will have them, um, grab their apparatus. Like in this case, I'm just going to still use a trapeze bar as an example. Um, they grab their trapeze bar, try to rotate their elbows forward, keep their elbows rotated forward and try to push the bar back as far as I can without losing that rotation. Mm. And that gives them an external cue to focus on, which I also really like. It's like, okay, we're going to point your elbows forward. So we're going to point them forward. So there's been research in the literature about um, using extrinsic cues tends to help people. So the same idea of like break the bar, we're using something else because we sometimes we say, I want you to feel work here or fire this muscle. They don't know what the heck we're talking about. So um, getting, getting kind of getting things to kind of wrap around that way a little bit more and just having them try it without the bar. So you guys can, since you already stuck your hands up in the air, we can try this together. Um, if you bring your arms straight up in the air or both ends and you reach your middle finger to the ceiling and you get a mental picture of where that middle finger is reaching and then you try to move your pinky to that spot as you rotate your thumb back. So you're basically reaching your middle finger up, finger up, rotating your thumb to point backwards, and then moving your pinky to where your middle finger it was. And ideally, when you do that, you should feel something <laughs> happening in your lower trapezius. Maybe we should have done a video crazy. on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. We'll screenshots you know that's fine we can we can totally recreate this at, at some other point at the cost of my um sanity probably make <laughs> me look really dumb for the instagram which i'm completely cool with uh, <clears throat> so speaking of like that type stuff because those movements tend to be very lat heavy do you find that like with increased like lat development that you get some restriction at some of those end range positions like how do you how do you balance that 
Yeah. Oh, gosh. There's a cool research study that's coming out. It was done by a, a, a grad student where she measured uh, aerialists' range of motion and strength, and she compared that to hand balancers' range of motion and strength. And I don't want to tell you what she found because that's for her to say. Um, but she was looking at exactly that. So if somebody's pulling so much, um, does, does that limit range of motion? In my clinical experience, um, I will say that my aerialists come in, the aerialists I'm seeing with shoulder pain have stronger lats than they do lower trapezius and, and or rotator cuff, depending um, on kind of how they're presenting and what their difficulties are. But yeah, so if they are primarily an aerialist that does all that pulling all the time, um, they will often develop a, a kind of lat stiffness relative to the rest mm -hmm. of their body. And I know you said most of the athletes that you're working with are adults, but I work with primarily kids. So I'm curious, are there different injuries that you see with pediatric aerialists and circus artists? Are there any differences or do you see issues with sports specialization like we see in dance and gymnastics that follow through to that too? So um, again, in my experience, so there are there are many youth circus companies across the U.S. of different levels. There are certainly recreational um, camps and, and classes like you would take gymnastics. Those kiddos kind of get hurt the way all kids get hurt. They fall down, they break something, they sprain something. Um, the kids that are on the performing side, uh, again, it's going to break down by apparatus. Um, okay. I will say that I think they are less likely to seek out care uh, for like the chronic things, which tends to be what happens with aerialists. We get less, um, I fell down and broke something, and a lot more, my shoulder hurts when I'm hanging, or my shoulder hurts when I'm inverting, turning upside down. Um, and because kids don't necessarily have the education to know that that's not normal, they aren't seeking out care, and maybe their parents don't have the knowledge because they're like, there's a um, phrase that's very popular in circus called circus hurts. Um, and yes, circus is uncomfortable. It is physically demanding and hard, but it shouldn't actually hurt. So I think there's an education gap with the kiddos. Um, I do see sometimes uh, kids and I would say they follow a similar pattern with my ground artists, my hand balancers. Um, hand balancers, you're going to get wrist stuff. Contortionists, you get back and hip stuff. Um, sometimes shoulder, but definitely more back and hip. Um, hanging, I'll still see shoulders. I see a lot less shoulder stuff in kids. Um, and I think that's because those injuries tend to be of the chronic nature and not the acute nature. So, so similar, but I think, but less, and I don't know if that's just my population mm -hmm. um, or not. I know that the, back at WashU, uh, our former professor, Lynette Koo Summers, sees a lot of the kids through Circus Harmony, that youth circus company I was talking about earlier. And they are, um, they have a huge tumbling uh, component and she sees a lot of kids with low back pain mm -hmm. um, and hip stuff. So kind of along the whole shoulder, I guess, discussion, um, one of the things that I guess in, in recent years has kind of come into question, and then there's a lot of discussion about, like, how much does it actually matter? Scapular dyskinesia. Yeah. Is it, like, a thing? Because, like, there's a lot of research that says that it's not really a thing, but then there's a lot of people that still talk about it, and it seems like... I don't know. Circus is is unique. Like, is there are there more things that we should look for in the scapula and how it moves when it comes to circus? I will tell you my opinion because because I, I don't think I'm 
I am uh, able to synthesize all the literature and research and tell you a finite answer, but I will certainly give you my opinion. Um, I think for this population, scapular dyskinesis absolutely is an issue because they're, they need to get to like 190 degrees of shoulder flexion. And the only way to get there is if, you're, if your mechanics are pretty darn gorgeous. Um, and I think they actually need more posterior tilt than the average person. You know, a lot of the researchers, I talked to um, Paula Ludwig about this, um, who is a shoulder biomechanic researcher. And I was like, so, you know, what is happening with the subscapularis, you know, like at 180 degrees? And she's like, well, first of all, what's happening with the subscapularis, which I thought was hilarious. But uh, she's like, oh yeah, I don't really look at above 160. And I'm like, but that's where things get interesting for me. Most of my patients don't even have pain below 160. They mm -hmm. come in and they only have pain at very, very end range. So I think for my population, scapular dyskinesis um, is a thing. You may or may not actually see it until they get, get to end range, because like dancers, um, sometimes what you'll see is they start off normal and they get to the end range and their brain says depress. And so, like, normal, 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 like, at, like, 170, 180, they just, like, start jamming their shoulder down, and they're like, oh, it hurts when I do that. And, like, you're like, well, reach towards the ceiling a little. And they're like, oh, yeah, it doesn't hurt anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so I do think I do think the scapular dyskinesis um, can be real in this population. Um, and probably, for me, I think it's real in general. I also, you know, intra, intra versus inter-tester differences, uh, you know, when you look at the studies on it are hugely variable but um but I, I do find it it's a thing i'm looking i look at shoulder flexion if i didn't have any equipment in my in my clinic i would look at shoulder flexion i want to know what's happening throughout the whole range but especially in the last 20 degrees um and that's great otherwise i actually do a hanging um like analysis and assessment uh just like you would do a standing postural assessment uh, but i'm looking at them in hanging so i'm looking at do do their scapula upwardly rotated enough? Do they posteriorly tilt enough? How are their levels of where everything kind of lines up? So, um, so yes. So do you, <laughs> do, you do, that on, <laughs> do you do that on a, on a pull-up bar or do you have like a, a trapeze that you have suspended in your clinic? Like how, how do you, how do you do that kind of assessment? Uh, in my clinic itself, I have a, a pull-up bar kind of in a whole frame thing. And then from that bar, I also have aerial silks hanging. So I will look at them out on, a bar and their apparatus. Um, I tend to want to look at them on a bar, even if that's not their primary apparatus, um, because of the stability of the bar itself. Sometimes it makes things mm -hmm. a little more obvious. The other thing is on the vertical apparatus, so like a rope or the silks where it's hanging down, they're not in as much end range motion because the apparatus is in front of their face. And so if they were at 180 degrees, the apparatus would be going kind of like through them. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, um, so I do have both to look at that. Um, and that's pretty inexpensive and easy to set up. Pull up bar, you can, you know, if you don't have appropriate door frames, that, that totally works. And then I'm also in a circus school for at least part of my week, one or two. Um, and so if if I'm there, the studios are wonderful. We sign waivers and I get to have them actually on their equipment and watch them move there. That sounds so awesome. It's so fun. My job is so cool. It does sound so fun. <laughs> what, like, what do you, what does a normal day in your life look like? Are you just like... Cause like right now I'm just imagining that you're running from like circus tent to circus tent and like petting <laughs> elephants as you go. Yeah. Well, I, um, I take my elephant along with me, you know, I just like on a leash, it's small enough. It goes in my pocket. It's cool. <laughs> it's a very big pocket. 
Um, no, my day looks like most other clinicians, most days. Most days I go into my clinic and I see patients for an hour. Um, where it really gets different is I get to be really creative with um, exercises, which I think is fun. It's like, okay, what are you? What skill are you doing? When do you have your pain? When? Or sometimes people are coming in for performance enhancement kind of thing. So it's looking at why they're having a weak spot or movement. Is it painful? And trying to problem solve that in something similar like position. So I get to use my brain a lot, which is really fun. Um, but my my day mostly looks like any other clinician. However. Sometimes my clinic is inside a circus school, so I um, do have hours at a circus school, but I have a room there, you know, and my patients come to my room, my clinic, little table and stuff, and then only if we need to do we go down and use the circus equipment actually in the space. Um, and then, of course, when I'm working with a circus company, I do backstage work, just like most other performing arts uh, backstage therapists. So. So yeah, my, my day doesn't look a lot different. My um, bodies are just really cool that I get to work with. <laughs> now we, we've talked about some backstage work when it comes to like musical theater on this podcast before, but what does backstage for circus look like? Are you doing like evaluations and or like treatments beforehand? Do you do any sort of like emergency care stuff like during the show? What, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so um, so for Acrobatic Conundrum, they usually do a home season run uh, in December. And when they're here, I am kind of on call-ish. Um, I will be backstage with them usually a couple times during the during their run. So like usually like once or twice, I'll actually go in and do some treatments there with them. Um, and then they can also just come to my office and I'm kind of available to them. What's really interesting about circus that may be different than musical theater or um, or hopefully dance these days um, is where musical theater tends to have a clinician with them a lot of the time. Circus, almost no companies have a th physical therapist. Circus Slade does provide most of their shows with athletic trainers or physical therapists. No other company really does. Um, and a lot of these artists, when they come in, they're coming to Seattle having had pain for weeks, months, years, and not getting it looked at because they didn't have the finances, they didn't have. So it's a, it, yes, I'm absolutely doing evaluations and not just triaging um, because it really is a service that I am happy to be able to provide these artists that are coming through Seattle. Why do you think more circus athletes don't have exposure? Is it typically a financial thing like in dance or is it is it another reason? Is it education in the art or? Yeah, I'm going to answer this in like the nerdiest way possible. So this is a great journal article that was written last year. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, hopefully I'm sure you guys have are going to have a website for this. I'll give you guys a link to my bibliography page um, of the journal articles that have come out musculoskeletal based or just that I've randomly stuck in there for the last couple years. Um, but yes, there's a journal article that just came out talking about circus artists and their impressions of healthcare in general. Um, some of it is finances. Artists just don't get paid well. Some of it is they are afraid to go to healthcare practitioners because they're going to tell them to stop what they're doing. Um, some of it is that they have been to healthcare providers and it hasn't been as helpful as what their friend Jim's helped told them to do because Jim's also a circus artist and had the same thing and kind of did the stuff. And, and so there's like a lot of like, oh, well, the I think thing, rub an onion on it. 
that's what I've like, in like traditional circus communities has, has kind of circulated. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's lack of knowledge in on the healthcare side of the provider um, of saying just don't do that versus maybe like let's work together and figure out how to modify that or how do we make changes because the cool thing about circus is it's not dance where there's choreography you have to perform generally. Usually you're doing an act either in a small group or on your own and you can make significant modifications and it's not going to ruin the whole show. You know, you can still be engaged and involved and taking the time to listen to these artists is hugely important, especially um, as circus keeps growing in the U.S. The more uh, healthcare provider knowledge that is out there, the better. Um, So again, I have, I'll give you guys a link to a vocab list. that has some descriptions of stuff. Um, and also, um, and that should soon be available on the PASIC website as well. Um, and so having familiarity with the vocabulary is huge. Watch some YouTube videos. Ask your patients to show you a video of their training because they all have been videoing their training, all of them. <laughs> Everyone's got their phones out. Um, and so they probably have a video of what they're doing. And if you can break down the movement with them, that's huge. So yeah, so on the provider side, it's they're scared of lack of knowledge um, and th- quote unquote, wasting their money. Um, they are a population that, and I think the study was out of the UK and they were like, yeah, we don't use the NHS. We don't use the National Healthcare Service. Uh, we are th- we're giving our money to very specific providers that the community has decided knows enough to spend money on. So even though there is a healthcare system, they don't generally feel comfortable going there for care. Um, and then, you know, their bodies are their money makers and they are terrified that their livelihood and their passion and their identities can be taken away by someone saying, just don't do that. So, so there's a, a lot of things going on. Um, but generally with American artists, it's usually a lack of finances and access to care. Um, and then secondarily, provider knowledge. In other countries, it, it's a little different. And that, that's certainly pretty consistent. We found through the performing arts community, like as a whole, mm-hmm. um, it's very similar to a lot of the ideas and, and kind of thoughts that go into medical access, as well as like, you know, should we go actually see somebody in the dance world? Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you? Like knowing that those things are similar and that there's probably a little bit of similarity between like that identity as a performing artist. Is there a, do you, I get, oh, sorry, words, I'm going to edit this a little bit. Um, <clears throat> do you, do you see the same thing with stuff like body image? Yeah. So with body image, I'm seeing it a, um, so yeah, <laughs> body image in circus kind of ranges the gamut. It depends on what companies are being involved, if there's a company involved. So on the professional level, um, some companies, for example, like Cirque du Soleil, are going to be very particular about the size and shape of the bodies that they want in their acts. I've had friends that I consider beautiful bodies and amazing performers, and they've been told in the past, um, your act is great, but you have hips, you have a butt, um, and we won't... that's not really what we're looking for. And they really do go on aesthetics. Um, so there are some body things. And because bodies are tools in circus arts, there are some body image issues. But I have to say, it does seem to be significantly less than dance. 
And part of that is because there's also companies out there that are very specifically inclusive. And as Circus has grown over the last 10 years or so, it's been more in the time frame of inclusivity. They're looking for different cultural types, different nationalities, people of color, people of different orientations and different bodies. Um, and there have been companies that have very specifically looked for that. Um, on the recreational side, when we have these adult onset aerialists and adult onset athletes, um, they are coming with the acceptance and knowing that nobody in their class may have ever done this before. And so it's much more comfortable as a person of different sizes and shapes to go in and take class because you know no one's going to be good at it. Um, and so it does tend to be a little bit more inclusive. The pole community is even, I think, more inclusive generally. Um, of course, there's still people out there on the internet being internet trolls, but those are just horrible people. Um, <laughs> but there, there does seem to be a little more body positivity of, wow, my body can do this, um, than the inherent body image issues that have been there for years and years and years and fomented in the, in the pedagogy of like ballet, for example, where it's just been there for so long. So I think, yeah, I think there's less body image issue, but absolutely on the, the former, um, former side, there's a lot of pressure to have the line, the look, um, to get the to get the gig and to make sure that you have your income coming in. Um, oh, actually, interestingly, on the body image stuff. So the the woman who uh, she wrote a blog article, a blog a blog post about her Cirque du Soleil thing. Uh, and her name is Rachel Strickland. So if you want to Google her, the, she's also a beautiful performer. And um, also with that, there is a trans artist um, who specifically femmed themselves up to get more work even when that was not their internal identity so like there's also body image and what the consumer and client wants to get work and to pay the bills versus who you are and me so it's it's really interesting uh it's really an interesting topic because it's not it's not always what we think of you know it's like who's our market and how, how are we communicating with them because I know in dance, you want to be lean to look a certain way, but also because the male has to lift up the female, right? And you want to lift up someone who's light, which is, you can talk about that all day, but aerial artists who have to pull themselves up a rope, you would think on one light, it would be easier if they're lighter, but also if they don't have the muscle mass to back that up and they physically cannot pull themselves up. It could be on two opposite ends of the spectrum, you know. Yeah, and with a lot of circus, you actually do have partner work where there is a larger person and a smaller person. Um, but some of the best acts I've seen are people of more similar size. It's always really funny. I'm going to call out Circus Leia again because they're they're the ones that most of us have seen. Um, right. They they've had uh, in one of their early shows, and I cannot remember which one. These two brothers, they're amazing. They're almost the same size, one slightly bigger than the other, and they do a hand balancing act. But now you also see the people like the dude's like six foot five, weighs like 300 pounds, and the girl is like four foot eight and weighs like 80. And it's like, do, do you really need that much of a weight differential <laughs> to perform what you're doing? I'm like, yes, it makes it easier when you're doing that many shows. Like, it probably does decrease your injury risk, but it is interesting. It's like, do we really need that much of a differential to get that movement done uh, and to do it safely? Um, and I don't actually know the answer to that, but 
it is interesting. So it's interesting you bring up Cirque du Soleil. Um, one of the most fascinating like talks that I went to at iAdams last year was actually by Cirque du Soleil when they talked about like how they started managing injury risks and stuff like that. And one of the things that I thought was incredibly fascinating was that, um, well, there's a couple things, but the thing that really, really stood out to me was the fact that much like you've been describing these adult onset aerialists, they a lot of times take people who didn't make it in like the NFL or the NBA or that have some sort of crazy gymnastics background or something or like retired that. retired from gymnastics at 16. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and basically right. mold them into circus performers. Yeah. Um, that they just take other athletes and they find ways to kind of fit them into this like theme or story that they're trying to tell on stage. Um, I just thought that was like so cool. That was also like they have the great video and um, Paul McGinley, who's uh, their head head of rehab, is, is such a delightful human. Um, and Iver is his presentation was amazing. Okay, uh, but no, no one on the podcast cares about these people. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredible how they take these people with dedicated brain space to being athletes and take that same drive and goal oriented mentality and shape it into circus. And that these people are are happy and and want to make that change to stay in their bodies as their tool, which is really interesting. And then one of the other things that I found interesting, were, um, were you at that presentation? Like, were you oh, kind of, yeah. I, oh, okay. I was at IAMS. I gave a talk on hanging mechanics. <laughs> Why aren't you there? Why aren't you there? <laughs> really? also, I, how did we not meet? Yeah. I don't know. Well, okay, I don't know. I, I did the, the kettlebell thing for dancers like in one of Oh. That was me. Uh, I think I went to that. Or I went to part of that. I was there. I was at your talk. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. I, mine was in the same ballroom. I don't know which day it was, but it was in the same ballroom. <laughs> um, so small world. If I had known you, we would have hung out at small I- world in performing arts medicine. <laughs> right. right. If I had known you at that point in time, we would have hung out at at I Adams conference. Absolutely. Um, we told things- really bad jokes about elephants and stuff. Yes. I would have known more about circus before this podcast. You would. You would have known uh, all about the hanging mechanics and, and what it feels like and awkwardly rotating your arm. I probably didn't. Honestly, I probably didn't go to that lecture because I had never seen a circus performer before and was just like, well, I should probably go to the one on dance, not the one on aerial. <laughs> totally. And that actually brings a, a, that actually brings up a good point for me. Um, I'm just going to sidetrack us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of clinicians are thinking, oh, I never will see a circus performer because those are really specialized things and really specialized people. But um, in about 2006 or so, there were about eight circus schools in the U.S. And as of 2018, the last survey done by the Circus Educators um Association, American Circus Educators Association, they were, they sent out, they only got about 15% response, but they sent out over 800 surveys. So we have, in 2018, we had over 800 circus schools from eight in like 2006. So the exponential growth of circus in the U.S. means that you will have a recreational aerialist walking into your clinic sooner than later. Um, It continues to grow, continues to get bigger. Hopefully, being shut down for coronavirus does not kill too many of the studios. Um, I know a lot of them are struggling right now um, with rent and landlords because they need big spaces with high ceilings um, and those are expensive. Um, But 
if you haven't seen an aerialist in your clinic, you will probably see one soon. It is the largest largest area of growth growth in circus arts in the U.S. Um, is aerial studios, um, and you'll probably see pole artists too. That is also a huge growth area. So, get educated, learn about it. So, Danielle, when we go to the Colorado one yeah. for I Adams next year, mm-hmm. we'll make sure that we're sitting in the front row so Emily can see us participating in, in, the, Definitely. in the discussion. We'll bring you up as an example to do that shoulder maneuver that you did earlier. Oh, me? <laughs> yeah, you. I don't know if you can see on the screen, but, like, my right arm doesn't go up as high I, as my I, 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 At the time when we were doing it, I was only sitting <laughs> in the right arm, and I'm like, oh, that looks that looks tough. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you can maybe you can fix me publicly in front of the entire performing arts community. Oh, absolutely. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> so the other thing that I was going to talk about from the Cirque du Soleil, um, I guess, discussion at IAMS last year was they talked a lot about using like modern day stress science stuff. Um, they had specifically talked a lot about the acute chronic workload ratio, um, which we see a lot in, I guess, more field sports than anything else. Like that's kind of where it's been mostly used. Um, but they also talked a lot about like training and like cross training and, and the things you can do to be better on stage. And they had this very comprehensive approach where it comes to like nutrition and like, you know, weightlifting and then also having, you know, rehab built in that. What kinds of things do we see in the circus community as far as like what are common cross training things that people do and um, what are things that they should be doing if they're not? Um, circus artists like to do circus things. Very few of them are doing cross training. Okay. Um, it needs to be there. The ones that are doing cross training are doing great. Um, the other thing that circus artists don't tend to do a ton of is cardio. Mm-hmm. Like dancers, where you're going across the floor, walking to get back in line, a circus artist will do their skill or their series of two or three skills, go down, look at the video, talk to their friend about it, look at the video again, go back up, do their series of two or three skills. And then when they put their act together and their act is like two minutes long, they haven't moved continuously for two minutes before. And it you know, can get dangerous. That's where you get injured is when you're not able to keep up with that. So most, again, most, some aerialists love cardio, but most aerialists do not like cardio. Um, and most aerialists think that because they're super strong from aerial, that is enough strength. In the, but I'm with you. Aerial should not be the hardest thing they're doing. Their training should not be the hardest thing they're doing. They should be lifting and doing more so that when they're up in the air or doing their feet of amazing skill that they are not at their capacity there. They still have room. So is it because we see this mindset a lot in, in dance and obviously those deficits that you just talked about are things that we see in the dance community, you know, strength, strength and conditioning, uh, cardiovascular training. We see it, you know, just a big lack of of people doing those things to enhance what they can do on the stage. Um, is is circus and, and aerialist performance? Is it the same mindset that dance tends to have, where the only way to get better is to do more of what you're already doing? Yes, I think it's shifting. I think it is shifting, but it's um, and again because the time frame is all tighter and we have more knowledge going into the training. Um, than the length of time that we're having to change minds and dance, that it is it is shifting and it's shifting um, faster. But yeah, on the whole, it's like, well, if I want to get better at doing this skill, I just need to do this skill more. Maybe I'll break it down to parts. Maybe, you know, but but to add a strength training component is not, it's not at least not the first uh, in the front of the mind, front of their mind. 
Now, is there the same like aversion or hesitancy to strength training that, that we see with a lot of other performing arts? No, no, there isn't. So that's, that's great. These artists want to look strong. They want to feel strong. Um, there is a, there, there is a premium placed on strength and um, agility of the body. So it doesn't, it doesn't have that same stigma as it might in dance where like, oh, I'm worried about looking bulky. These artists are amazing human specimens, um, in my opinion. But, uh, but yeah, you'll see um, the, the very classic. So most aerialists will have a very triangularly shaped body. They have very strong arms and shoulders. Ideally, they have some muscles to their legs, um, and the good ones do, because there's a lot of counterbalancing and movement that has to happen or wrapping and locking with their knees and feet. So um, they will have strength down there, but it does not compare usually to the amount of shoulder strength that they will have. We need to get some cross talk between circus and dance then to convince the dancers that it's okay to do strength. And you can still look gorgeous and have fluid, gorgeous motion. Right. Yeah, because that's one of the, like, obviously one of the big things that we fight all the time working in the performing arts population is just that aversion to getting bulky or changing the aesthetic of what you're, what you're doing on stage or costume fit or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, costume fits, costume fits always a big deal, but, uh, but yeah, these artists are definitely less hesitant from the, I don't want to get bulky. They still want to have the aesthetic appearance, but it's, it's more um, it's more accepted in the community to have muscles. Is it something that's talked about like in circus schools where they're saying like, hey, you guys should go do some weightlifting or you should go do some running or anything to help supplement what you're doing here? So uh, it depends on what you what type of circus school we're talking about. So most of the circus schools in the U.S. are going to be recreational based and they are going to be working with artists or general population of coming in, taking class. Those, they don't do as much. They're starting to do strength and, strength and flexibility classes. And really what gets people in the door is the flexibility part. And they don't realize that by gaining strength, if you do it right, you can actually often gain flexibility. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so there's, they use the sexy flexibility lore to pull people in and do some strength training. But most schools aren't really tackling that. That's not really their goal. Um, there's only one full-time um pre-professional or sorry, professional training school in the U.S. right now. Um, and that's in Philadelphia. It's called Circadium. All the other ones will be, they'll have pre-professional programs. The pre-professional programs um, will again vary, but some of those, that's when they'll start talking about, you should be doing cross training. You should be doing strength training. Um, so on that pre-professional level and then the professional level, that's when we're starting to get a little bit of talk that way, but probably less than there should be. Hmm. Now, if someone was like a younger clinician was interested in getting into the world that is circus, uh, what recommendations would you have for somebody that's trying to break into that realm? Give this population your time and your deep consideration. So if you go and teach a workshop, they will love you forever. If you give them a piece of information they didn't have before, they love their bodies and their tools, just like the other performing arts. Um, so if you tell them something about their body, they will trust you as long as it, you know, 
it's good information. Um, so if you teach a workshop for these people and then when somebody comes into your cl clinic, you give them your full attention, you get creative with how you're thinking, you ask questions about the movement they're doing, you don't tell them a hard no, you problem solve with them, um, they will send their friends. They will send their friends' friends. Um, they are looking for a practitioner who, even if they don't have the knowledge, has enough knowledge to ask questions. Um, mm -hmm. They just want someone who's going to really think about them and take the time to learn about what they do because so many people just dismiss it out of hand. What is the biggest like misnomer that you see when working with circus performers or, or aerialists? And it could be either from a rehab perspective or from the performers themselves. Yeah, um, I think from the rehab perspective, um, I have had so many uh, artists and even on the recreational level who have told me uh, either as patients or just in passing that they went to a physical therapist and they said, my range of motion is limited or I have pain at the end of my range of motion. And the physical therapist measured their range of motion and said, you're past normal. You, you need to stop doing that. Hmm. And it's like, no, we need to really be critical about what we're thinking. You know, normal hamstring length is, you know, 70, 80 degrees. What dancer doesn't have more than that? What, you know, and what is actually limiting that hamstring range of motion in a normal population, um, in the average population of humans that are sitting? It's going to be the muscle stiffness. It's not joint capsule. So what's the problem with getting to 110 if they have control and no pain? So let's help them get there with control and no pain um, versus sending someone away because they have normal range of motions, like, but they have a problem. Listen, ask the question. So yeah, in the rehab world, especially on the mobility side, um, really taking a critical look at why, why they're asking, why they're having pain, why they're coming in, and um, what is normal range of motion, and why is that the norm? The norm is it joint capsule, and yes, we need to be protective of that, or is it just muscle length, and maybe these muscles are longer and have been used through a larger range of motion? Rapid fire questions. Do you have any books that you're reading right now that you would recommend to our listeners? No, if you don't read books, that's okay. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I'm actually reading uh, two different doggy training books because I just got a puppy two weeks ago. So I'm reading lots of books about um, appropriate use of, uh, you know, commands and when to time her feedings and ways to make her a perfect little member of society. Um, I don't know if they're appropriate for everybody right now, but um, <laughs> but they are what I'm reading. I'm also doing a lot of audiobooks um, while walking around the house, cooking dinner. When I'm actually allowed to go outside on long walks, um, I have been doing some audiobooks for pleasure as well. Right now, I am about 30 minutes into City Girls, which I've heard is good, but yeah. I've heard that's good too. That's interesting. I'm also doing a lot of audiobooks. It's, I like it. It's a nice way to get through some information. Yeah, I like it a lot. It's it's almost easier to to wander. As a mover, I'm sure you're similar. Um, mm -hmm. I process almost better while walking, right. <laughs> while moving. So it's it's often easier for me. Um, unless it's really really engaging or I really have a big chunk of time, I, I like audiobooks a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? Well, again, it's kind of coming back to movement. Um, I, when I, when I've lost my focus, there's kind of two different things I do. 
one is kind of assess why I've lost my focus or almost sometimes when I become hyper-focused, it's like, okay, are you now either hyper-focusing or unfocused because you've actually just been too busy and you need some time off and it's okay. Um, and as a performing artist, as uh, a former professional mover, I think sometimes we get so hyper-focused that it's, it's hard to take a break and to step away. So I think some of it is allowing that to happen sometimes. Um, and the way I can almost differentiate for myself is by my stress management, which is if I go for a long walk and I don't take my audiobook and I just see what my brain says to me, if the little voices in my head are mostly quiet or um, freaking out in stress ways, um, then it's usually time for me to actually take a break. If the voices in my head start processing things and getting excited, that's also how I start getting ideas for things. When my husband and I uh, were dating, we used to go on lots of hikes. We still do, but you know, less because of coronavirus. Um, <laughs> but when we when we were dating, and we'd go on long hikes, and we'd hike up, and I'd be relatively silent, or just you know talking to him about normal things. And on the hike down, I'd be like planning life stories of what I'm going to do next and what he should do with his career and the whole like. <laughs> it's just so uh, yes, movement for me is is how I process and how I both decompress and find inspiration. All right. You ready for this one? Danielle's going to be so excited. Is what is what is your favorite Pacific Northwest food? Oh, it is food. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, man. I mean, I feel like I'm not a good Pacific Northwesterner if I don't say salmon. Um, <laughs> but um, but actually, so growing up on the East Coast, like the New York, New Jersey area, like having a pizzeria, grabbing a slice, like that's your your street food, right? Like, or your easy, quick go-to food. Almost for us, like more than McDonald's, we're more likely to go to the pizzeria and grab a slice of pizza. And so the, that food in Seattle is teriyaki. So teriyaki is like the like go-to easy, quick pickup thing, um, which I didn't know until I moved there. So I, I do think that's kind of cool. I don't know if it's my favorite Pacific Northwest food, but I think that's my, that's going to be my answer. My quick fun fact. All right. What about voodoo donuts? Are they good? Are they worth the hype? No, there's one here in Houston and it was not that great. Oh my God. I'm they have a chain. Um, yeah. they're good. I don't remember from the last time I was there. It's been a really long time. They must not be that good if you don't remember if they were good or not. I'm also, oh God, I hate to say this. I'm not a really big donut person. Understandable. I'm like, I'm not a sweets person. I'm like, give me a bagel and a pound of pasta any day. But like, I don't, I'm like, donuts, I'm like, okay. So if they were good, they were probably, I probably enjoyed it. But I probably, I was also there because somebody else wanted to go and didn't seek it out on my own. Gotcha. Sorry burning your day that's okay it started with the elephant thing now it's donuts <laughs> like i guess we're just gonna have to end this podcast now i guess that's it click <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> and my job <laughs> um emily we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today if anyone listening wants to get in contact with you what is the best way that they can do that yeah the best way to do that is i am basically at the circus doc on all the social media platforms instagram facebook twitter um, the circus is my website um, I will send you guys over links to the bibliography and um, some vocab lists so you have that. 
and that will be an easy way to find me as well. Um, I'm also just around a lot, guys. Look for look for talks and stuff that I give. I really do love educating. It's one of my favorite things, even from my teaching circus days. It's just a part of what I do. So look forward to meeting you all in person. And you have a book, yes. Oh, I have a book. Um, it's Applied Anatomy of Aerial Arts, um, and it's by me, Emily Sherb. It is found at all your local booksellers or can be ordered online from all of them while we're in quarantine um, or at your local library. Uh, and again, circusdoc.com friend slash book will give you lots of different ordering options. And do you teach a course too? I feel like I, I do. I do. I teach um, a continuing education course um, for healthcare providers on aerial artists, specifically the shoulder right now. Um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll also sometime later this year have some little assessment modules online for sh- shoulder alignment in hanging and uh, assessing an inversion technique. So look for those coming in the near future. They are not up yet, but they will be soon. And yes, Con Ed courses as soon as we're all allowed to leave the house again. Um, unfortunately, all of mine for this year have so far been canceled. So we'll keep we'll keep our eyes out. It's um, Evaluation and Treatment of Aerial Artists is the name of the course. Cool. Well, I'm, we're, we're definitely, when we go to iAdams next year, there, I don't know, because I've been to Denver before, I don't know of any good teriyaki places, but there's a really <laughs> good place that has, like, poke bowls. Yeah. Which, yeah, poke bowls again, are big in Seattle I as thought well. it was poke like, ball, so I was, like, really excited about Pokemon. <laughs> Another disappointment in my life. But Aww. it turns out it's really good, like, sushi Ritos and bowls and stuff like that. So yeah. we'll have to, we'll have to go there and, uh, and talk more about the circus and, and love that. We were just there for CSM this year and had a blast. Going so. back. Yeah. Um, and then if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Danielle, what is your Instagram handle? My handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle, a nice underscore DPT. And I, Emily, I tell her this all the time. She's a very nice PT. <laughs> very well done. Very well done. And but Jake, how guys, do we find you? Uh, well, <laughs> Danielle and Emily, if you guys would like to reach out to me, you can find me on my poor quality rehab meme page slash podcast slash other podcast slash vlog page on Instagram uh, at TMD underscore the movement docs. So. Love but it. thank you thank you again, everybody, for tuning in this week where we spoke to Emily Sherb all about circus and aerialists. It was really informative and kind of opened my eyes uh, to a much broader scope of the performing arts than I honestly even really knew existed. Um, if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next week. And as always, everybody, don't break a leg.